story came back to me. Um, I grew up, first let me just say that I grew up knowing of the stories of uh, the loss of our family homes. I had uh, a great-grandmother whose name was Bessie Bishop Davis, and her folks lost their home during this devastation. And she never forgot it. Uh, she was 98 when she died, and Michael and I were very little, and we'd go up and sit with her when she was a very old lady. And she'd sit and rock, and she'd, I'd say, where were you, little girl? And she'd say, under the water, under the reservoir. And we could never understand, you know, as children, we were trying to picture her under the water. And then finally we got it, you know, she stole my home, they stole my home. From Bookworms in the Wild and from Anchor, I'm Howard Alterescu, and this is my podcast, where I ask people I find interesting to tell me what they're reading. I'm in West Shokan in the Catskills today to talk with Kate McLaughlin. Kate is a painter and printmaker, and during her long career, she has exhibited in notable galleries and museums around the world. Kate is President Emeritus of the Board of Directors of the Woodstock School of Art, where she teaches printmaking and landscape painting, including to Carol, and where she directs the printmaking studio. Through her paintings, poetry, and prose, Kate's book, Requiem for Ashokan, The Story Told in Landscape, is her outlet to tell a personal story with universal themes of tragedy, loss, grief, confusion, and rage, as well as of migration, shared resources, competition for resources, and the importance of fair treatment by the government. Kate lives and maintains her own studio in Olive Bridge, New York, near the site of the Ashokan Reservoir. And the Ashokan Reservoir is at the center of our discussion today. The Ashokan Reservoir provides about 40% of New York City's drinking water each day. It impounds 128 billion gallons of water at full capacity. The reservoir collects rainwater and melting snow from a 255-square-mile watershed that includes part of 11 towns in Ulster, Green, and Delaware counties in upstate New York. The Ashokan Reservoir is located in Ulster County, New York, in the eastern end of the Catskill Park. The reservoir was built between 1907 and 1915 by the New York City Board of Water Supply under the authority of eminent domain legislation adopted by the New York State Legislature. The reservoir and its aqueducts and tunnels were built to get water to New York City to alleviate chronic and dangerous water shortages in the rapidly growing metropolis. But the cost was borne by the thousands of residents of the Esopus Valley who were displaced from their family homes and farms and mills, taken from them and demolished to make room for the reservoir which dammed the Esopus Creek and then flooded the valley. When we first moved to the Catskills, I popped into the nearby Olive Free Library, got myself a library card, and asked for suggestions for books about the area. I was referred to two books, The Last of the Handmade Dams, The Story of the Ashokan Reservoir, by Bob Studing, 
and The Catskills from Wilderness to Woodstock by Alf Evers. Studing, referring to the building of the reservoir, wrote, quote, An old successful way of life, rooted in unanimity of purpose and the shared values of self-sufficiency and community, had come to an abrupt and disrupting end. And thus a place that had once been called home, a place which had been tended lovingly for generations, disappeared and was lost forever. Close quote. Evers wrote of the resentments between the citizens of the Esopus Valley and those of the city. Quote, when Esopus Valley residents protested against building the reservoir, they saw themselves caricatured in New York newspapers as uncouth bumpkins. Evers also wrote, quote, Hidden hostility toward the New Yorkers, who had been their summer boarders, now came into the open. New York people, it was said, were arrogant, Sabbath-breaking, and ignorant barbarians who believed that people north of the city line existed only for the convenience or profit of New York. Close quote. Kate McLaughlin is a storyteller as well, but Kate chose to tell the story of the Ashokan Reservoir through her art. Kate's book, Requiem for Ashokan, The Story Told in Landscape, was published in 2017. Kate has a unique perspective to tell this story. Her farming ancestors in the Esopus Valley endured loss and devastation during the creation of the reservoir. And her Irish immigrant ancestors in New York City were the beneficiaries of the fresh water flowing into the city from the reservoir. Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you very much, Howard. It's lovely to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you. I'm looking forward to hearing you tell us about the history of the reservoir from your unique vantage point and how you use your art to tell the heart of the story. Well, that's getting right to it, isn't it? You're probably referring, you may be referring to this latest body of work that I have undertaken called... Uh, Requiem for a Shokan, the story told in landscape. I started working on that in 2016 when, I, when the story came back to me. Um, I grew up, first let me just say that I grew up knowing of the stories of uh, the loss of our family homes. I had uh, a great-grandmother whose name was Bessie Bishop Davis, and her folks lost their home during this devastation. And she never forgot it. Uh, she was 98 when she died, and Michael and I were very little, and we'd go up and sit with her when she was a very old lady, and she'd sit and rock, and she'd, I'd say, where were you, a little girl? And she'd say, under the water, under the reservoir. And we could never understand, you know, as children, we were trying to picture her under the water. And then finally we got it, you know, she, they stole my home, they stole my home. So I've always known the story uh, about that, and... Um, what was going on for me is that I was walking up on the dam one time and I realized that we ran into some people who didn't know the story. They knew that their drinking water came from the reservoir, but they didn't know that any... any so these were New Yorkers? New Yorkers, yeah, from Brooklyn. A young couple, beautiful. 
and uh, very friendly people, and we were talking, and I said, anything you want to know about it? And they said, well, it's beautiful. And I said, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> and then I told them the story about what happened. They had no idea that, that families had lost their, their homes and that 11, you know, all these villages were gone. So uh, I, I began thinking about it, and I began writing about it, and next thing you know, I was doing artwork about it. Up until that time, I'd been making a living um, as a landscape painter, um, painting the beautiful... Catskill Mountains, but the Ashokan Reservoir in particular, and large format oil paintings. And, you know, I, I kind of make my living that way. But this work was very, very different. And the, it's the work that's in that book that you have there. They became very emotional. I, was, I knew that I wanted to do them in black and white. I didn't want there to be color. I wanted to, to express the mourning or the grief. I wanted to, uh, like, give the landscape a voice. And so that's what I did. And I you know, I came back with 20 or 30 pieces of artwork that were much different than everything else I've done before. And they were created um, in succession, in a, almost a frantic, or frantic isn't the right word. Um, I became possessed. Frenetic. <laughs> frenetic is yeah. probably the word yeah. I was looking for, yeah. actually. And, um, you know, I had several pieces of paper on the wall. I was working on several at the same time. I'd go back for lunch and coffee, and I'd, I'd write more about it, and then I'd come back fueled again. And... It became, you know, it sort of worked and played on itself. And it became, like, really an important body of work for me. And I'm going to show it again. I'm having a second iteration of that up in Norwalk in a couple of weeks at a print center. And I'm delighted to tell that story now. So we've taken this personal story, a story that was personal and local to me, and we're kind of scaling it up. And because we realized that many of the themes are universal migration, loss, shared resources, competition for resources. It's sort of a universal story, if you think about it. It's a much bigger story than is ordinarily told. Uh, I think so. You know, the, the frenetic nature of the painting comes through. The black and white is so dramatic. Mm. Uh, there's, there's poetry in it. So there's poetry in some of your words, and I'm going to ask you to read some of it, if you don't mind. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, it is stark. It is, uh, it's jarring. Yeah, it's meant to be. Yeah. I mean, I didn't set out to do it. I mean, just, I started out, the very first piece was a beautifully rendered little uh, charcoal and graphite and chamois and just a rendering of the lower basin. I was probably in there somewhere. And, you know, just a beautiful little drawing. And um, then I went back for lunch and then I started writing about, you know, you know, because I was doing the research too. It's, it sounds like you've read, I'll find it for you. Sounds like you've done a lot of reading, and I was I was just reading about what was going on and the way these people were treated, and I just got angrier and angrier and angrier, and uh, you know, so this is where I started. This sort of, in a you know, kind of a benign, it's beautiful sort yes. of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I finished with that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, the work began in just a quiet way. And then it just got fueled. And then it was working on itself. The more I worked, the, the more sort of into the writing I got. Um, the poetry I did, some of the poetry that's in there, I did a couple of three or four months later. I went back up to Provincetown, and I just started looking at it. And I am often at the reservoir, and I'm gathering, you know, I mean, I sketch and do drawings, but I also see things, and I jot them down. And all of a sudden, everything took on these layered meetings. You know, I, I would see... Um, some winter vegeta vegetation, and it looked like a broom. You know, I, I think I wrote about that in the book. Yeah. Um, 
birds that would all just sort of just kind of take off and take shape uh, just reminded me of the migration. You know, just, it all just became part of the whole thing. And I, and I felt like it was time to tell the story. And when you tell the story, of course, you're telling the story primarily, maybe exclusively, from the perspective of uh, the family, your family and the families who were here, whose properties were taken or moved but, or demol and or demolished. Uh, and who were forced to leave their homes and their farms and their mills. Uh, but on the other hand, and, and I don't want to leave that, uh, but on the other hand, in addition, you had family uh, who was benefiting, mm -hmm. uh, Irish immigrants in New York City. And uh, that story, of course, has been told many times. And actually, I was reading uh, just a little while ago a piece, interestingly, written in 1909, uh, uh, Harper's Monthly about the great achievement of the world's greatest aqueduct. Mm. Uh, but this is 1909, before even the completion. And all it talks about, uh, which is uh, very important, is the monumental achievement, this, um, uh, the damming... The, no, the, the engineering of, was the phenomenal. Engineering. Yeah. There's monumental no doubt about it. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. It is right up there with the Panama Canal and the Suez Canal. This was a, one of the most incredible feats of engineering. And it, there's a man by the name of Frank Almquist. You must hear his lecture when he gives it. He, does, he talks all about the engineering because that's where he comes in from. And he talks about, I mean, this is 92 miles this water travels from here to New York without a pump. Right, just gravity. Gravity. Uh, when they, and you know, it's his story to tell, so I won't get into it. But there are, there, and, and it ought to have been written about it like that my beef with all of that, because every time you heard a lecture about the, the reservoir, it was about that, the, the phenomenal engineering and the benefit to that. And everybody was forgetting about it, except for Bob Studing in the 70s, when he was, when he was touring with his book, he talked about the loss, because he, he met with Elwyn Davis for years and years and years, and he got a lot of first-hand accounts of what it was like, you know, um, and he has those recordings. So... I, I find myself at an interesting crossroads because I really understand, the, I understand today and I understood even as a little girl the need for, for clean drinking water in New York. That wasn't the problem. It was the way these people were treated, Howard. Yeah. Um, and the McClellan Act, uh, Governor McClellan, of, uh, he was a New York State governor, when they, when they were building the Croton Reservoir 75 years before that, they treated the people poorly. And he made an act of government, a resolution, and I believe it was passed, that there should, that any New Yorker, any, any New York citizen that had to be moved would not be treated so poorly. It would not be, um, you know, eminent domain is one thing if you need to take the property, but they'd be um, compensated at a, at a fair price. These people were not con compensated at a fair price. And that's not even the injury. It, when I read the testimony and the... Um, you know, you can go down to the Hall of Records and read them. These people were badgered. My great-great-grandfather, um, Ephraim Bishop, was a quarryman, among other things. They all had a million dollars. Is this Bishop's Mill? Bishop Falls. Bishop Falls, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yep, his father was uh, Jake Bishop, and then Jake Bishop's father was Asa Bishop, the founder of Bishop Falls, and one of the early settlers over there. But um, he was 77 when they were, you know, taking his property, and um, summarily badgered this guy. I mean, how do you know what your? When's the last time you worked in this quarry, Mr. Uh, Bishop? How do you know the stone would still have value? How, you know that sort of thing. His brother Asa owned a, um, an apple orchard. His testimony reads like this: 
how do you know you would have had a good year this year? How do, isn't it true that greenings make better, have a better market value than your, you know, like they were just really, really badgered and tried to, I mean, they were working to keep the, the payments low. That's what these commissions sure. were, were to do. But so that I think is the thing that was the most, um, that didn't have to happen. I get eminent domain. I get that New York needed water. And especially, it wasn't just because my family was down there, but I mean, the people were dying of cholera and yep. people, you know, so. So you're, you're right about uh, Bob Studing, Studing mm-hmm. his book. He, he writes, about, he said, the reservoir destroyed the independent character of a rural place and people. In, an area, in the area that became the west basin of the reservoir, there were 504 dwellings, nine blacksmith shops, mm-hmm. 35 stores, 10 churches, 10, 10 schools. schools seven sawmills and a grist mill. Yeah. And an old successful way of life uh, was destroyed. Um, and and you, you take a very fair approach. I've heard you speak on the topic. Uh, you understand the need for eminent domain. You understand the need for building the reservoir. It was a engineering miracle. It's mm-hmm. provided great value to the city of New York. And the world, because and New York world. is, the, yeah. you know, the world, right? Uh, a lot of us think so. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, well, uh, yeah, Wall Street, of, yeah, <laughs> you know, absolutely. I mean, it runs, it runs the world. So it's, it's, a criti- it's critical, New York City is critical to New York State, mm-hmm. um, but at the same time. And the, the um, eminent domain uh, legislation requires fair compensation. Mm-hmm. And I can understand people taking issue with how much was paid, but the testimony you refer to is, is compelling. People need to be treated fairly and feel as if they're being treated fairly. Oh, that's right. I mean, there's no way to put a dollar amount on the loss of community, the loss of ancestral home, that, and, and then ripping somebody from a sense of place. That, like, there's no number on that. That's, but when they were... So I think you, you must have read about it. If, if a value was um, $3,000 for something... They would often be paid one hundred and fifty dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't ten percent; it was like five percent. And the the other part about this is that uh, for every dollar that was spent, seventy five dollars was spent on commissioners and lawyers. And do you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. if an, if uh, the people were saying, "Why is this costing five million dollars?" the people of the of the uh, the Asopas Valley didn't get those those numbers. It right. just cost that to legislate it and to to make all the reparations. And so, so you mentioned that there was a book before stu- uh, students. Yeah, book? Charles Wiedner. He was a great uncle of mine. Oh, really? Yeah, a brilliant man. And he it's called Water for a City, and it's very dry. You have to really get through it. But he's, that's, he he talks that's, about that's, it's a text. That's a, that's a pun. It's <laughs> yeah. very dry. But go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, really, I didn't even catch it. Uh, He's a brilliant guy also. I think Rutgers published it, but um, he basically talks about the history of water, you know what I mean? And then it gets to our part, uh, because his family also was relocated. And that is probably where Bob got a lot of his information also, because he was very studious, and um, all the numbers are there, all uh, and quotes from newspaper articles at the time, and his own anecdotal stuff, and it's, it's a good one to read. Have you done landscapes of a series of this kind on other topics? No. This is my first foray into having that sort of really working from that place. Yeah. And how many generations do you go back? In Ulster County, 12. Um, Under the Reservoir, 7. Under the Reservoir, (laughs) 7. Yeah. Uh, So seven generations of your family were impacted by uh, the building of the Reservoir. Well... 
it was uh, my grandfather's, really is my great, my great grandmother and their, her folks and their folks and their folks. So there were really only five under there, but we had settled it and then we we're still here. So yeah. the last two generations yeah. been up on dry land. <laughs> and on dry land. And how many family members are currently uh, in Ulster? Wow. Well, I have a lot, a lot, a lot of cousins all over. They're like all over the place. I mean, like my mother, at my mother's funeral, she had 31 first cousins there, oh. you know, that kind of thing. So I, I don't, I couldn't give you a number. Like, well, right. yeah, my, right. my grandmother's youngest sister, Aunt Helen, had 11 kids, so that, <laughs> like, I, I can't tell you. But I mean, I live still next door to one cousin and another two cousin and her kids live behind me and my, my older brother live up the hill and, you know, that kind of thing. And, and are others as moved by the history as you are? Absolutely. But I think, you know, I have an outlet. You know, yes. and not everybody does. I, I mean, I'm really lucky That's to be a writer and a painter, and the rest of them just sit on it, yeah. and or stew about it, or curse people from New York. You know, it's like, I am so over that. You have no idea. And it's like, part of why I wanted to tell the story and to get lectures happening and get some public forums happening is because I would really like to sort of lance that boil and have it be over. Because it really was not about the people of New York versus the people of the city of New York. It yeah. was just a board of commissioners. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, I do. And it's interesting the way you put it as an artist and a writer, mm -hmm. you have an outlet. I and do. that's a beautiful way to put it. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of what I find uh, when, I, when I do a lot of reading is that people use literature as an outlet. They mm -hmm. use writing as an outlet. And, that's, uh, and your art enhances that tremendously. Thank you. Well, thank you. In your, uh, your book, Requiem for Ashokan, The Story Told in Landscape, you um, wrote the Well, you wrote something, and maybe you can read it for us. Mm -hmm. um, this is the one I'm interested in. Do you have enough light? I think so, yeah. Is that a good one to read? Yeah, that's beautiful. For a minute or two, Watch the pearly fog shroud high point after a spring rain, or see a burst of light break through a dark cloud mass at sunset, and you'll be touched by the story. The landscape insists that you feel it as it was told to her. Inky, starlight nights recall this deep black loss. A lightning strike shocks us in disbelief of this epic story, and high point just bears witness. Veils of mist weep over her gentle slopes. Shafts of light pour their hope upon her cliffs, and still there she looms, large, unmoving, but moved somehow. I find myself softening edges, cleaning up dissonant marks, drawing tenderly over violently applied gesso. Wouldn't I, though? Soft fine charcoal and a well-used chamois cannot quiet the commentary that runs through my head like a freight train when I consider the history the local diaspora, our own seekers of refuge and remembrance. I remember you. I won't forget your sacrifice. Maybe my work will help others remember all of yours. You're milling and clerking and growing and sewing and blacksmithing and ministering and cooking and washing and birthing and caring and loving and burying. May it be so. That's beautiful. Thank you. This is a terrific discussion. Thank you very much. Did you get what you needed? I did. Thank All right. You. Thanks a lot. More information about our guest today can be found on our website, www.bookwormsinthewild.com. 
Our website also includes links to the books and other resources we've referred to in our discussion. Thanks especially to my podcast team. Dave created the podcast with me and is my producer. Ron is responsible for art direction and design for the podcast, our website, my bookmark, and other merch to come. Let me know if you'd like a bookmark sent to you. Melanie, as always, is in control of most everything and has provided overall creative direction. Ben and Eden provide additional inspiration and support. And, of course, Carol is my muse as well as my affiliate manager. The entire Wolfpack is also responsible for introducing me to most of our guests. Thanks also to the great Anchor team for making it free and easy to create the podcast. If you liked our podcast, please subscribe. And in any event, let me have your comments either directly on the podcast or at bookwormsinthewild at gmail.com. Looking forward to seeing you on the podcast next time.